Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm George Chen, and this is SupDoc, a show where we talk documentaries with guests from the worlds of comedy, film, TV, and more. We're very pleased to have the director of 2018's Bathtubs Over Broadway on the show today. It's filmmaker Dave Wisenant. Bathtubs Over Broadway is the story of Letterman comedy writer Steve Young and his journey into the subgenre of theater known as industrial musicals. It starts off as a story about collecting weird records, but turns into something much more emotionally involving. David Wisenant is a filmmaker working in Los Angeles and New York. Bathtubs Over Broadway is her feature-length directorial debut and earned her the Albert Maisel's Award for Best New Documentary Director at the 2018 Tribeca Film Festival and the 2019 Writers Guild Award for Best Documentary Screenplay. David works in both narrative and nonfiction film for over 20 years with an emphasis on music and comedy. She produced and edited the blues and civil rights film Two Trains Runnin', the 3D rave documentary Under the Electric Sky, and an American Masters film about Merle Haggard. And now here's my talk with Deva. Thank you for coming over to Mikasa <laughs> in reference to the film. Uh, uh, Mi Havel, is yeah, that right? Mi Havel is Sue Havel. Mi Havel is Sue Havel. In the immortal <laughs> words of Don Bowles, uh, Deva Wisnant. I, I know this is how you pronounce your name because I listened to the uh, Alec Baldwin interview <laughs> that Steve Young did. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming over. Um, Bathtubs Over Broadway. Uh, congratulations on this film. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this is your first directorial film? Yeah. Yeah. I've been an editor for like 20 years, but this is the first thing I directed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been quite the journey, quite the learning experience. Yeah. And... Um, for those who don't know much about it, uh, Steve Young is sort of the subject. But in a way, it's about a guy who's obsessed about other people, and then you're following him. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the subject of corporate musicals was is part of the story, but also Steve's journey definitely becomes a huge part of it as well. Mm-hmm. And one of my first questions I had was, how did you end up, because it sounded like he, you guys already knew each other. Yeah, I used to be an editor at The Late Show, David Letterman, and Steve would bring his comedy pieces down. He was one of the senior writers there. Actually, I think he outlasted everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And just I knew that his sense of comedy was so bizarre and wonderful, and Mm -hmm. I loved working with him, but I didn't know that he collected corporate musical vinyl or anything like that. Uh, he, He told me that way after I worked with him. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did that come up when the book came out? Is that it how was, that came up? Um, it came, he sent me some stuff before that on a CD. And, um, you know, I, at first I was like, I don't want to listen to this man. It's like corporate tunes and Broadway stuff. Like I'm not into Broadway, but eventually I listened to it and it was like, Oh my God, mm-hmm. people have to hear this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, some it's great and it's also crazy and funny and weird and now, Wonderful. so when you were, were they still doing this segment when you were working on Dave's show? No. no yeah. They, so it, yeah. Record collection, that segment had been over for a while. And that was actually one of the first things Steve was assigned to when he got to the show. It was still on NBC then. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, he just accidentally, like one of the head writers just said, hey, take this office. And oh, yeah, these records in here, the, the record collection guy did this. Oh, so he inherited the collection? Yeah, he, oh. they put him in charge of it just kind of. You know, it's just happenstance. Like, oh, take this office. Oh, do you want to do record collection? The guy before did record collection. He's like, sure. He wasn't a record collector before or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how did your path end up like that you ended up being an editor at The Letterman Show? Well, I had been cutting all kinds of stuff in Los Angeles. And I moved uh, I moved to New York with a former boyfriend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, he... He was involved in helping The Late Show transition to HD. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that um, he was like, oh, you guys should hire Deva, you know. So I just started kind of freelancing there. And it was a great job for me because they allowed me to kind of come in and edit for them. And then I could go do an indie film or something and then come back. And so it was was a really great job. And I actually was also there for the final days. Um, They brought me back to do some of the final montage pieces and stuff Mm -hmm. for the very end of the show. So that was pretty cool too. Okay. So you were based in LA normally, but you were just in in New York for that time period. Yeah. I was finishing another film uh, called Two Trains Running around that time. And so I was able to kind of finish that and also work at late show for the very end and and also film some of that stuff too because we were the only crew that was ever allowed behind the scenes at late show oh so you did behind okay right so it was some of the, i was always wondering about the time frame of like when you were working on this because there's clearly some like 2015 is when letterman ended ended yeah. so you came back and did a lot of behind the scenes stuff for that for, yeah and the um so i started filming with steve before way before uh, the, you know, Dave actually retired. Mm -hmm. So, but the announcement was pretty soon after we started filming and I thought, Oh my God, this is terrible that, you know, Mm -hmm. I was counting on filming Steve, you know, in his job, like as the man behind the man and, Mm -hmm. Oh no. Oh, that was like the agenda for the documentary initially was just to just follow this guy who's a Mm -hmm. comedy writer Mm -hmm. for Dave Letterman. And you know, he's got comedy damage. Nothing's funny to him anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, or regular stuff isn't funny to him anymore. And, you know, what's it like for him? Like what makes somebody decide they want to collect corporate musical records, you know? And I, I was just counting on having a lot more time. Actually, it turned out to be the right amount of time. And we were actually able to film the last days of the show, which is a real turning point for him in his life. So, you know, you never know how things are going to go, but that was kind of awesome. Right. So you, you, he, he did he so he put out the book in 2013 is yeah. that right yeah so then that was around the time you guys started talking about starting to, to film some stuff yeah and the the thing with the book was he he had um you know he'd been collecting these things for like 20 years he finally put this book out and then people started coming out of the woodwork like oh i used to work on these things and people he'd never heard of so oh. i followed him as he went to meet new people and as other avenues kind of that he thought were closed in his searches they started to open up. So he heard that Pat from the bathrooms are coming was in Chicago. And, you know, and then she said, Oh, Sid Siegel's in Chicago too. And he, yeah, he's alive. So I followed him as he went to meet this guy who was composing. Right. The doorbell and all that stuff. Yeah. That's so, yeah, I was wondering about the timing of that because he clearly did some interviews just for the research for the book. Right. Yeah. He like, he did meet Michael Brown, Mm -hmm. um, through, 
his research for the book. And so, but Michael Brown passed away just as we started to film. Right. So yeah, he's um, a, he's a figure where you don't have uh, any talking head footage with him or. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, we talked to his wife mm-hmm. uh, after the fact, but um, so yeah, he had done some research, but he really didn't go to meet anybody, which I found fascinating. He, it was either on the phone. I mean, Michael Brown lived in New York, so he did go to visit him, but a lot of these other people, he would just call on the phone. He didn't even Skype with them, you know? Oh, wow. So, so, uh, it was fun to, to get out with him cause he had really been in this little bubble of the late show. And so to, it's like a whole world opened up to him as he started to do this and meet these people. Right. I think, yeah, there's sort of like this personal development yeah. story aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. Which is really interesting. It was yeah. wild to see. Cause I knew him as this uh, whole other person, just kind of, you know, funny, weird, yeah, cynical comedy writer. And then eventually he started opening up more and more and it's like, wow, I can't believe this is the same Steve by the end, you know? Right. I think that is real life. Yeah. I think that's the arc that I was sort of identifying is like sort of maybe also like he's like about 50 ish. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like he, and then he obviously worked at the most kind of cynical comedy show or like people associate, you know, that generation with a kind of irony and especially like David Letterman with a certain type of irony. And I see this as a sort of like move through like there's sort of like an irony bubble that pops <laughs> is what I like to think of it as. It's just yeah. like the market value of the irony is sort of like, how, well, how do you emerge out of that? Yeah. And that's, I think, what you really get to at the end of the film with this guy. It's like, I because I, I just, I sort of watched it in two halves and then I just started watching it over again. I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of see how the setup of this transition in his life goes where it's like, definitely the same reason that I would imagine people like Jella Biaf or Don Bowles are interested in. It's just like, it's so weird. Yeah. It's just so weird. And then you're like, oh, these people had lives and this is like their art. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah they, they devoted their careers. A lot of people did. Some of these composers, this was their main thing and mm-hmm. they put everything they had into it, which is why some of these things are so wonderful. Yeah. This is not at all like podcasting, by the way. I don't think it has any relationship <laughs> at all to a, a lost ephemeral form that no one cares about. But um, um, I, I actually was funny because I was rewatching and I was remembering little bits that I had forgotten like, oh, uh, you go to, uh, is it Co-op 87 in yeah. New York? Because Ben Steidel is the guy behind the counter who I actually know. Oh my God, that's yeah. crazy. There's a lot of people I kind of know in this film. Wow. Like Ben I knew. Uh, he, I think, just opened a new record store called Brooklyn Record Exchange. Uh, and he's just like this befuddled, like, you know, kind of like electronic music hipster guy. And he's just <laughs> like, uh, the person that Steve reminds me a lot of is Andy Daly. Do you know the actor, Andy no, Daly? No. I will show you a picture at the end oh, of this. okay. He's very, like, if we were to cast, we do a game on the show where we, like, try to cast a, a biopic version of a documentary. <laughs> I'm like, that's my casting for Steve Young. <laughs> oh it's God. Andy Daly. Oh, yeah, I which it. I know if you've thought about any of the people you would cast. Uh, uh, who, Jello uh, is Jello, Dombles is Dombles. Right, I don't no think you can replace those two people. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wow, who would be Steve? I can't wait to see who you're. <laughs> well, that's the only one I got was really Andy. Di- but I'll show you the picture. And he's like a, a Upright Citizens Brigade kind of person. But um, um, yeah, and then Pyramid Records in San Francisco. Yeah. Also, I yeah. recognized the, the you know, that that environment. That's a shop my friend used to own. Yeah, we were um, any place that we would go with Steve. He would he would go in and try to mm-hmm. just see if anybody had heard of it. And nobody 
when I was with him, nobody had ever heard of these things. Yeah. Did you go with him to Amoeba ever? Did he go to Amoeba Hollywood? Because I feel he like you can find those. Amoeba Hollywood. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. If he's still run. on the hunt, uh, which I imagine he would be. He, yeah, he's still doing it. In fact, since we've been on the festival circuit, you know, every city, we would go to the record store in every city. And in Detroit, he found some. And that was very exciting. And it happened to be on record store day. Okay. And then um, and then where else were we? Oh, he was on. He did something in Florida and it was like Orlando or something. He found this amazing record store and got like more than 10 which is that never happens. For yeah. Anymore. Detroit makes sense because the auto industry seems yeah. to be like the auto industry has a lot of marketing money to just throw away. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the other con connection I had to this, speaking of uh, being in Los Angeles, is Jonathan Ward is like a friend of a friend of mine. Get out of and here. And that's like kind of the initial person who he was like, oh, you should maybe have this guy on on your show. And he was like. Yeah, I mean, I'm in it, but it's not, I'm not like the main part of it. And at this point I hadn't seen the film. So okay. he's like, it's like, you really should talk to Deva. So that's how he, oh, okay. he directed me towards you, okay. which makes sense. But he is in it significantly, it seems He's like. such a wonderful part of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he really was one of Steve's main collecting buddies for all those years, you know. So mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite, favorite scenes in the film. Oh, yeah, when they're just sitting there nerding out about the... Yeah, yeah. and one of the things was, you know, we wanted to, fi- we had to figure out how to play these songs without totally stopping down the whole narrative of the film. And... That was one day where we, my co-writer and I uh, were playing with that footage and he was like, well, why don't you just try, try putting that song underneath, you know, to see if it lines up. And I was like, there's no way it's going to line up. And so we put the song they were singing in and they were doing the parts exactly that, you know, the timing was exact. And it was like, oh my God. So that's one of the most wonderful kind of almost accidents that we... Oh, but aren't they listening to the record in the room? No, oh, they're not. They no. were just, oh, you guys put that under it. Yeah. Oh, I th- I was convinced yeah. that he actually was like, it was like diegetic sound in the room or he something. He started singing it and then, <laughs> and then Steve started singing it with him. And then we just, we put, we kind of faded it up. Yeah. You know? um, no, no pitch shifting, no time shifting they, or anything. Yeah. And they, yeah. It was just like, they know these songs backwards and forwards. Oh my gosh. And that really, to me, showed how much they... They know these things because they can sing them like, you know, you kind of mention one line and then both of them are off singing. And it was it was so cool to see that he had a friend like that. Yeah. That he could share these things. The with. Batman and Robin vibe. Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> My young ward. <laughs> Literally. Um, and they're both so funny. I mean, John Ward is just so funny, which is really deadpan, though. Yeah. I So my friend knows him from he collects 78s as well. Yeah. So like, yeah. and I believe he works at the Getty. Yes. Is that right? So he's, yeah. yeah uh, it. it it is sort of like a librarian kind of problem in a way. It's like <laughs> kind of like if you're in the world of like metadata, this is sort of like essentially the problems they're having with tracking this stuff down. Like they're yeah. like talking about the early days of eBay when people yeah. just like, it's just records. There's no like subgenres or anything. And it's such a random needle in a haystack process to find these things yeah, in like the late 90s. Were- looking past it you know oh yeah most people it was getting thrown away i mean how many crazy recordings were just thrown away because nobody knew this was a thing Mm -hmm. you know which is i think the other thing that i see around as uh i'm a i do collect records as well so there was that sort of like 
uh, look of familiarity when I was watching this film. Uh, <laughs> what do you collect? Uh, I've got a lot of like, I had a lot of like, you know, it came up in the 90s and sort of like the indie rock but punk world. So, and then I took a kind of a left turn into like noise music uh-huh. in the 2000s. So I've got a lot of like experimental noise records oh, wow. and cassettes and stuff all behind you over there. But, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, which is also why when I, we, I see something like, you know, Don Bowles's collection and Insane. yeah. And also just like, he's like, Oh, these are all my lost pet flyers. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, there is something about, okay. I'm not going to call him a hoarder, but I think there was like this fine line between being an uh, obsessive collector and like hoarding and sort of maybe it's just like how, how, how easily it is for you to find the stuff in your piles. And I mean, Don has some amazing records. It's he, and he spins around LA. He spins this stuff out. Right. He has a weekly event, the dingling, the Monty bar on Saturdays. And then, yeah. Oh yeah. On Wednesdays at the Hyperion, um, and obviously Don Bowles was a drummer of the Germs in yeah. a bunch of other bands. Still, like, I see him just playing drums with random people around town all the time. Yeah. yeah. He's he's a fixture. And the the cool thing about seeing him and Steve together was, you know, I had never met Don before I got involved with this project. And we had just this one crazy day with him. And Steve and Don together, it's like they could be a comedy team. I mean, they're both so witty and so fast and just the jokes flying back and forth. I thought these guys could be their own show because very, very funny. And, and Steve is more the like kind of reserved <laughs> guy. And then Don is just saying these crazy things, but they, the way they, it's like tennis back. And, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So funny. Level of banter. We yeah. like professional head comedy writer for Letterman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then a punk drummer. Yeah. Can hold his own against the, the veteran comedy yeah. writer for sure. Did you did you grow up with um like a, a comedy background at all? Or how or like how did you end up like I mean, I think I was attuned to it. My father mm-hmm. had the driest sense of humor, but we were always laughing at weird stuff in my family. Um, so I, maybe I was primed for it, but then working at late show really, that was great experience timing and, and mm-hmm. seeing, you know, you got instant feedback on whether the thing that you did that day is good and if, you know, could it have been better and what made people laugh and when. And, and editing like for uh, Letterman, is it like sort of like field pieces or like a lot, yeah, of, field a lot of field pieces, pieces. Uh-huh. and yeah. And little, those little things they called extras, like in the monologue, they would do funny little weird graphics things. And mm-hmm. Yeah. It was kind of all over the place. But what era was it that you were working there? 2000. What, God, when was that? It was like, 2003 to 2008, I think. Okay. Yeah. The writer's strike was right in the tail end of that, right? 07? Yeah. I I finished before that, I think. Okay. So you were were in New York for a while then. Indie films Mm -hmm. around that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was off and on for a while. I really, it was like a little family, you Mm -hmm. know? So many people had been there for years, years and years and years. Like Steve was there for 25 years. Yeah, that's crazy. I was listening to like he, he got that job like right after college or something. Yeah, he, he was at the Harvard Lampoon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, many TV writers are, are <laughs> Ivy League as we are yeah. always reminded. <laughs> but he's he's so down to earth. I mean, you know, he didn't even know uh, 
he thought Harvard was in New York. Like, he, you know, he's talk, he's like, they should never have let me into Harvard. But he was from Massachusetts. I think that helped him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and did you, so you went to film school or what was your background? I went to the University of Miami. And okay. yeah, it was um, we had a film program. It was like film and television. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, it was pretty good. But we were we were cutting on film, actually. And, and uh, we had like three quarter inch tape to tape. There was no Avid when I was there. Yeah. I've, we've, we've talked to a few filmmakers from Florida. Ronnie Asher oh. uh, has been on the show. Cool. And he's from Florida. And I met this guy, Sid Guerin. Yeah. He is a, a, does credits, visual, visual stuff he, also. They did our animation. You were know, the beginning, the intro animation. Yeah. Right. I think I saw his name in the credits. I'm like, oh, I just met this guy yeah. at Zebulon with... Because uh, Bill Orcutt was in town. And, They're so, so talented. Yeah. Mind yeah. bomb films. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really love, like, there's kind of like these two, like the intro graphics and the song and then sort of your closing bit, which is like, goes to another level of like, <laughs> um, which I don't know how much, I I don't know that there's spoilers to really <laughs> spoil in the film, but I'd say watch the film for sure. Um, there, we, we're going to talk, we could talk a little bit about the end of that because I also, uh, my other random connection is I used to work for Jello what? in San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. And like, so that was another thing people were like, oh, you should watch this film Jello's in. I'm like, he's in every documentary. <laughs> I'm like, he's literally in any music documentary. And like, I'm just like, when I saw like, the, I, I, I had not seen that angle into, I've been in that house. Oh. But I've not seen like that angle from that high up angle you have down into like the living room. And it's like it looks like a ski chalet with like <laughs> yeah, those weird yeah. stones jutting out. I'm like, I saw that back. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I, it, it's crazy because like I worked for him for like five years. So like wow. when I watch a film like I was I watched that Ronnie Bingenheimer film uh, uh, when, and when I was still working for Jell and I had fallen asleep. Not to say that it was, it's a great film. I just uh, I happened to fall asleep, and then I just heard Jello's voice. Oh yeah! And I'm just like, you don't want to hear your boss at like 1 a.m. after you passed out, like on TV. It's like, oh, this is terrifying. Um, but yeah, no. Um, so you, I guess that was your trip to San Francisco when you yeah. guys went to Pyramid was just to shoot that footage with yeah, Jello. Yeah, to meet up with Jello. Yeah, that was one of the most intense things. You know. Well, I know that he d- goes to bed at like six a.m. So he probably was like, "You can come over after seven p.m." Was it something it was like very, that? It was definitely yeah. late. Uh, but it's still it was early for him, but late for you know late in the day that was yes, for sure yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and he was making early breakfast. for him he was like don't don't film me making breakfast <laughs> okay all right all right yeah but um he has a lot of amazing records oh god too. yeah the, was the two of them nerding out was pretty fun yeah that's so so random that they know each other yeah. even in such yeah, and, a small world and they really appreciate each other too you know mm-hmm. that's that's what's so beautiful about this record collecting part of this is mm-hmm. that the, there's this it's it's about sharing and it's also competitive so it's this funny funny thing back and forth um but you know and these guys are so unlike each other mm-hmm. i said that i think and jello was like how do you know we're unlike each other <laughs> maybe we're going to be sleeping together later you don't know <laughs> oh man yeah exactly um yeah i actually i was thinking of there was something about this also reminded me a little bit of crumb. Oh yeah. You'd be like, just sort yeah. of like the arcane, like it, it, it's like, it's, this ends up being like sort of nostalgic in a way or like sentimental in a certain way, which like, 
uh, I think like with Crumb, he's like a guy who collects like 78s and it's sort yeah. of just like, I don't get modern music, you know? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't, it, I think the, the thing about it with these guys, what, what ends up happening with, I don't know if I'm like, I don't know, I'm phrasing this properly. Um, the fact that like Steve becomes sort of like the caretaker of yeah. like these people's whole creative lives and yeah. stuff that they've forgotten about to some extent, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He said that he would first, he would call the people to say, you know, he wanted to talk about whatever diesel dazzle. And first they would be suspicious, like, okay, is this a joke? And you're from Letterman. So you're going to make fun of us. You right. Know? They already knew about the record uh, collection part of Letterman probably. Yeah. Or at least just that he's a pretty cynical dude. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then they would, talk and they'd realize that he's serious about this and then they would go back and start listening to their stuff again and call him and say oh my god I started listening to that again it was it was really good wasn't mm -hmm, it and mm -hmm. just they had written it off as something that nobody would ever care about mm -hmm. so that's what I love I also love that Don and Jello too it's they're not really sitting in judgment they're kind of open to mm -hmm. a lot of different kinds of music and even Broadway musicals on a certain level you mm -hmm. know if it has some something that's interesting to them I like that openness yeah and I, I see what would attract like knowing jello like what would attract him to this concept of like <laughs> it's a corporate record you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly the the things we're not supposed to hear about the way companies work yeah yeah, yeah they like, want to motivate people to sell you know and, and i think trackers. he makes a point which i was thinking when watching this of just like th these this type of work doesn't exist anymore right like the idea that you are like a company man or something that your right. entire career is in one field and like i have the same accounts for 40 years and like yeah you know we get a steak dinner and a gold watch at the end you know that whole world is gone and that that you would stay with the company for that long and so the company had to invest in you mm -hmm. you know it was worth it to them to have a big annual convention yeah. and party because they needed you to be pumped to stay there and have you know it did seem like it was a totally different time. Yeah, it doesn't work with our like gig economy no. world. There's no like, like here's a YouTube video. Here's <laughs> just a DIY video of like <laughs> like oh this is how you should have water and gum in your car when you're picking <laughs> oh, people God. up. Yeah. You know, yeah, the yeah. Uber music. Don't ask for any of the corporate profits that the <laughs> right. overlords are getting. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A way different world. Yeah, like and 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 just like so that part of it I do think is really interesting of just like the psychology of like also like who what who decided to make a sexy purina commercial exactly like such yeah. a weird goal yeah for the salesman <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah talking about cash registers and and, that, you know, that one was that particular musical was all to get the, the guys um, to understand the promotions, mm -hmm. to get the salesmen to understand the promotions that were going to be in like the grocery store or yeah. whatever. It was like they had to explain it. It had to be you needed yeah. a sexy lady in there, right? Because it's so dry, yeah. it's like the instructional <laughs> yeah. aspects of it. Yeah, you get an eight, you get eight cent coupon or something. But then know? that's an interesting thing because like a lot of the performers are women. But then I'm like, it, are these sales forces mostly men? Is that kind of the vibe that I? I'm you know, like, I feel like it's 2019. Everything has like a gender component to it when you think about yeah. it. But yeah, I asked every single woman mm -hmm. that I interviewed about what it was like for them, and and um, you know, well. So as far as the the corporate musicals started kind of mid 50s mm -hmm. um, and the sales forces were definitely mostly men, uh, 
it seemed like we, we were seeing more in the 70s. It was starting to change just as far as the pictures that we could find of the different musicals and who was involved. Uh, there was also like a, um, you know, Tupperware did stuff and that was mostly women, of course, mm-hmm. uh, in those sales forces. But it was definitely mostly men. And the women said that, as, like Pat and Sandy from the bathrooms are coming. They they said, well, you know, yeah, it, it was kind of sexist, but that was just the the way that it was. Mm-hmm. And we were beautiful and we enjoyed the, like, you know, it's not really the answer that you want as a feminist, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. I did ask them about Well, then like she met her husband as yeah. one of the stars of the show, right? Yeah. 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 But I'm thinking more like, yeah, we don't know that we don't know what the people in the audiences, how they felt about stuff. That's the one thing that I started wondering, like, what is going on with these people at these conventions they well yeah and that's we found anecdotal evidence uh-huh. of, um in and you know sometimes they would have to fill out comment cards about did oh, you like cards. this show mm-hmm. and um how did you feel it was this year uh so we had some written evidence mm-hmm. of that uh, and then we we managed to find a couple of um people like there was a the guy that runs a ford dealership in la and he was talking about how they went and it was they it was something they looked forward to and but it was nothing really like earth shattering, which right. is why I didn't include it in the yeah. film. It's just kind of like, I mean, we have Florence Henderson saying that the salesmen would lose their freaking minds at these things, especially when they would finally reveal the car, you mm-hmm. know, they, the, and the structure of the show is generally like they would tease this stuff all the way through. And then at the end, there's like the big finale number where they show you the cars and people would freak out. Come on and spread the word to every sales creator. I am 97% sure that is Michael Brown. Really? Absolutely. What is that? Does it sound like it, uh, another track? It sounds like seven of his songs were put in a blender. Oh, wow. The reason I, I think I suggested um, Walter Marks is because mm-hmm. it's a Kerbawi MPO uh-huh. production. But uh, Michael Brown did the 64 Dodge show. Which is Kerbawi. Yes, it is. Oh, yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The documentation at the time is either like home video footage or like these vinyl records uh it. it seems like they skipped even the tape the cassette tape era well so a lot of what i found was uh people who were in the shows they would give me vhs tapes mm-hmm. of the stuff you know like the burger king thing we have on vhs and and um and but mostly they weren't filmed 
at mm. all. I mean, it, it was amazing. They would even do a vinyl record of the show because it was so disposable to them. It was, you know, once that show was done, it was like, we we're going to worry about next year's products. Mm-hmm. So this year's products, we don't care about, you know, right. once we already know how, you know, we told them how to sell it and we had the party, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just forget about it. That's why it was so hard to find any film. And we were so lucky to that, that some people had actually kept stuff that they worked on in their basement, you know, like the bathrooms are coming film, which is, did you talk to any people that were like corporate archivists at the corporations? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. I was wondering did. about that. Yeah. 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 The Coke archivists, uh, you know, they, they gave us some films, but it was just kind of like the teach the world to sing stuff. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really stuff that they were doing for their conventions earlier, like 50s, 60s, that stuff that mm-hmm. we have on vinyl is amazing from that time. And JC Penney, um, we talked to them and Ford and Ford didn't have anything. It's crazy. Yeah. I, th- I think we had one weird GM clip. Um, it was like they had filmed this thing. It was like a circus. It was, but there was no audience. It was like they had just filmed the show after the fact. And there was like an elephant. It was very weird. <laughs> very, there was so much weird stuff, man. <laughs> and you've got it all, right? You've got <laughs> yeah. it on a hard drive somewhere. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Converted uh, like from like old formats and stuff. Like Yeah. So much. Umatics or exactly. something. <laughs> yeah. yeah there, I got, I had some three quarter inch tape stuff, um, beta, you know, it was like all everywhere. Yeah. I'm surprised I didn't, I didn't see any eight track collecting or anything. That was probably could have been part of it. Yeah. So it's like an ephemeral sort of, I think a way to think about it is like, it's sort of like the subconscious of capitalism kind of, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Well, you heard it here first. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, Like sort of. If you hear it again, you know where I got it. Exactly. (laughs) But um, yeah, no, I think that's like a really fascinating part of this, like sort of the forgotten even even by the 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 yeah. fact that it was like okay what was the budget like 3 million that was for yeah. a a show in like 19 mid 1970s it was before that before like that my even my fair lady was w- they spent $450,000 to put up my yeah. fair lady and uh so the same like, year the Chevy musical was 3 million dollars so it's like six times as much money yeah I mean, as like my fair lady with and, like Julie Andrews. Or and like, there was no way they were going to make the money back uh-huh. at Chevy. It was more just a tax deduction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, okay. So as someone who is like uh, attempting to like kind of do acting in, uh, in LA and also like starting in San Francisco, there is like the fact that like in San Francisco it was like, okay, almost all non-union work and a lot of industrials were like for the tech industry. Yeah. So there's like a lot of random work. Yeah. In in and so it was something relatable about that in that way. I mean, like I'm never going out for anything where you have to sing and dance. But I go out for a lot of like, you're an engineer. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I buy it. <laughs> you know, I'd buy that. So no singing and dancing? No singing and dancing for me, but like the industrial world, it's sort of like um doing stuff there's stuff which is just like you are gonna be in a corporate training video. <laughs> or I've had friends be like I'm, I'm, you're on, you're on a test I'm taking. Like there's a video test and like, you're one of the multiple choice options, like reading this line about like, you know, environmental damage and they just screen cap it. I'm like, is this you when you had hair? I don't remember. Um, so it's like funny also seeing it from that side of being like, yeah, it's money. Like you're a performer. Like even there's a time when Martin Short and Andrew Martin just needed the buck, you know? Right. And and they got to practice, you know, their And Tony Randall. (laughs) 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, Bob Newhart, it was crazy. Uh, I think Bob Alec Rossi. Baldwin even said he does these once in a while, but they're more like Q&As these days or something. It's more like yeah. meet and greets now. Yeah. These yeah. days, you, they just hire uh, somebody to do their own act. It's not special material for the company. Generally. Yeah. There's like corporates. I know for comedians, there's like corporates where it's just like, they're like, okay, what am I supposed to, who am I, who am I, what am I not supposed to say? And then uh, yeah. that's it. Like, I know Facebook and Google and stuff, they've got like, you know, especially like Facebook, they've got like artist residencies and things like that now. What? Like friends of mine do like, yeah, they've done like artist residencies at Facebook. Wow. Where it's like, just like make a mural. You know, I think Facebook learned early on that the murals is, well, you know, the story about David Cho? No. The, the sort of like street graffiti adjacent artist, visual artist. He did a mural for Facebook early on and he's like, uh, you don't need to pay me. Just give me stock. And then so they went public and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm super rich now. <laughs> oh, my God. So yeah. then they own the mural. They own the mural, but he got the stock in yeah. exchange. So And then it raised his profile in general. Amazing. Yeah. So there, there's these sort of different types of patronage that exist now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But this was like the level of patronage actually for, you know, being a, a creative at this time, I think is like, you know, very different than as we're saying compared to now. And also, um, it was interesting when you showed like some of the clips of like things that do still happen, like Walmart will do a show or something, or it's like, it's like, oh, it's like a little sketch in the middle of like a presentation or something. Yeah. It's not the full book musical with the story about the salesman who's down on his luck until Mm -hmm. he encounters the new Ford tractor of the, you know, to sell or whatever, like that kind of, and there's sort of like a crossover. Uh, Some of these were parodies, right? Of like, a few, yeah. yeah, A few were like parody songs. I think Steve was more focused on all the original Mm -hmm. songs, Mm -hmm. uh, and original musicals, but they would very often take familiar songs that people knew and, and, base the show around that because they felt like that was something that was already memorable. So it would help them remember the sales tips or whatever that were in the song. Yeah. I'm pretty great. Yeah. I imagine that would be a lot of now it would just be like, it's, it's going to be old town road, but it'll be about (laughs) literally, uh, repairing roads or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The, the Berg, what was it? No, Raguletto, you know, that (laughs) that one was obviously based on this, you know, songs that existed, but about pasta sauce. Yeah. And he, and he, uh, Steve was a Dr. Demento fan. It sounds like he was, I think he, he referenced that, uh, in that Alec Baldwin interview, I think. Oh, did he? I think he did. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I'm I'm not a Dr. Demento person, but I, so you kind of like were, you, you kind of went into this world fairly with like cold. cold. Oh yeah. Just like, I know this guy, he's really into this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I want to see what it's going to be. I'm going to follow him and his passions, which I think is like my favorite kind of like documentary. That's like weird Americana. Yeah. It's like, it definitely is in that vein of like an American movie or something like that. It's just like sort of whimsical, but like, you know, uh, very American psychology (laughs) to it. Yeah. And then that's, it's been kind of cool to show it around, uh, in other countries too, because we'd kind of been told like, Oh, only Americans are going to be interested in this. And that's absolutely not true because mm-hmm. it is about such a strange part of America and our history that I think it's fascinating to other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are some of the film festival highlights you've had from film? Fe- also you, you won an award 
A couple. Uh, Tribeca, yes. Yeah, okay. so I got a directing yeah. award at Tribeca, and mm-hmm. that was awesome. From De Niro himself, like, evolved, uh, <laughs> claimed that was one of his top films. He did. But, yeah. Apparently, uh, he wouldn't stop talking about it. Oh. The, the, the publicist for Tribeca said to me, you know, we're trying to get him to talk about other movies. <laughs> he's, he's to the point where now De Niro is willing to do corporate. <laughs> he's like, yeah. like, I'll do the Walmart. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Keep it real. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also Writers Guild Award. Okay. For best documentary screenplay. Oh, awesome. So awesome. That was cool. Yeah. I feel like, you know, documentary storytelling, it's, it's, it, doesn't always have to be this kind of educational experience where you, you you know you've learned like in the 50s they did this kind of industrial musical if there's another way to tell a story that's always what i'm looking for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, more of a narrative arc kind of thing and you worked on reality too or i did, did you, a little yeah. bit of that yeah um you know that that kind of teaches you how to do a lot with a little Mm-hmm. I, as an editor, I learned a lot about that, um, but it was ultimately soul killing, and I had to get out. I just—I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, I've talked to a few people that like started, or they got all their training chops basically in yeah. in reality, which I guess is sort of like a genre that only kind of blew up in the two thousands, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it was great for learning how to work fast, and you mm-hmm. know, but ultimately just. Um, the amount of cheating is just a little too intense. Mm. Not on every show. I mean, I did some, I did this genealogy show uh, for NBC that I actually enjoyed quite a bit and it seemed like the overall message was pretty positive. Um, yeah. Pre 23 and me, <laughs> the genealogy <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah. Right. So they were like getting, I remember the show. Yeah. Who do you think you are? Yeah. Who are some of the people you did uh, segments with? It was, well, we had Spike Lee and Gwyneth Paltrow, Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm-hmm. Um, so many God, mm-hmm. Lionel Richie. That was cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, I mean, full gamut of all kinds of stories, which I loved, you know, yeah. and that it was based on a British show that was much more doc style, much less like, you know, network TV. And I loved the British version. Mm-hmm. I, I think probably here it was perceived as very sleepy, but I, I loved it. It was so my vibe. Yeah. The, the, um, the sort of for network television, <laughs> I can imagine you had to like pump up the drama to a degree oh where like in the UK it, things can like, I mean, like the detectorists can be a show, you know, like (laughs) things can take their time. Yeah. Yeah. And this was like, you know, at the end they were like, you need to put in a pop song at the, in the last, you know, last act of the thing. It was like, what, how does this fit? You know, trying to make the pop song work. Just, Oh God. But (laughs) they just hand you down like (laughs) some musical assignments. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really appreciated the, the sleepy British version mm-hmm. and ultimately just went on to from there. I actually just felt like I need to be more in the actual documentary community that fits me so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to get in depth with these different areas that I wouldn't know about. Like I wasn't a Broadway fan before this and having to do all the research for this film made me appreciate Broadway in mm-hmm. a way I never had. Um, and I did a blues and civil rights movie before Oh, okay. What's that one? That's two trains running. Okay. uh, That's that's a documentary. Yeah. 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 Sam Pollard directed it and Mm -hmm. I edited and co-produced and that one, you know, I didn't know enough about the blues before that. And it's a great way to dig in. You Mm -hmm. know, I love that about documentary. So, uh, as a 
you you also edit your own film that you directed in this case. Yeah. 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 I had a, a co-writer because mm-hmm. I feel like you do need somebody to bounce ideas off and to challenge you to be, you know, is this the most efficient way to tell the story and what can we lose and what do we need more of? So, but I did edit it myself. I didn't really want to. It was more that, you know, our budget was only so high and yeah. I could afford to pay myself that rate <laughs> nobody else and then how did um letterman get brought in as a producer right he has a producing credit he was, yeah, yeah executive, executive producer. producer he uh very early on we showed him some pitch material and he he agreed to give us some early support so that was pretty cool and uh, yeah right because um, he has a production company as well yeah yeah. yeah. Well, it was just personal. It oh, wasn't it, was even personal. it wasn't even through. It wasn't through. Yeah. 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 Just because he believed in Steve and really appreciated his loyalty to the show. So many people left o- over the years and Steve just stayed and stayed and didn't want to go to another show. That's the thing that I kind of noticed. I think the end, it's like almost like he he was expecting the show to keep going, you know. Or, or he knew. I think everybody knew it was going to end at some point. Yeah. But um, he hadn't really... He, he wouldn't he's he not near retirement age at all no yeah yeah and just wasn't jumping into trying to get another late night gig either just he's been writing songs he's such a great songwriter mm-hmm. and that is something that has developed out of this project that i didn't expect um yeah so what yeah like you could uh, update us on how things have been going for steve since this film came out in the last year he's well he still stays in touch with all these people that we went out and met uh they've become like family to him so Mm -hmm. he he you know calls them like he would call his parents to check in on them uh we've we've uh actually we found a copy of the of gould growing oh the The hardest to find yeah yeah yeah. that only don Don had it (laughs) yeah so somebody who'd seen the film reached out and said hey i have a copy of this i've had it for 20 years my dad used to work at gould and uh he gave it to steve which is a beautiful Aww. kind of fun thing that's happened out of this. And uh, yeah, Steve's, he's been writing here and there on certain shows, but mostly he's just trying to like find a, his own way now, I think. Mm-hmm. And, it, and maybe not in the late night comedy world. Yeah, which is like such a different world than 1990s or even yeah. like the era of like, you know, the the great late night wars. Yeah. It's like so different now, I imagine. Yeah. From yeah. talking to people that, you know, knowing some people that work on shows and like just listening to interviews and stuff. Yeah. It seems like so competitive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he just, you know, he had had, he had enough 25 mm-hmm. years of the same gig. It was very, it was very much like the guys, the the salesman who would work at a company 25 years. There was Steve almost in the same situation. Yeah. I, I noticed that parallel yeah. of like where you really relate like the end of like uh, the Letterman show for and it's like this institution also. Yeah, it's sort of like ending of institutions. Absolutely. Yeah. That and that was being able to kind of tell those parallel stories was something I didn't expect that we would be able to do. But I was really happy when it worked out that mm-hmm. I could tell them that way and that maybe people would feel that he was a company man. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so then we should mention a little bit about the end end scene. Okay, yeah. yeah, the musical number. Yeah, like, uh, who? How did you guys arrive at this concept? To like, that's like, that's the ultimate way to end this. It, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was. It wasn't something that I had envisioned from the beginning. It was more after he started to meet these people and connect to them so much, 
And, uh, and I realized how much Hank Beebe, who had written Diesel Dazzle, was a hero to him. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was like, okay, why don't we do a Muppet movie kind of ending where we can get everybody together that he's met along the way. I don't maybe it is giving it away, but you still can't see how we did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and he got to write the song with Hank Beebe. And that was really cool. It was like learning from a legend in a way that this, this man has learned so much about songwriting and about how to emote and how, how to share your soul, you know, Mm -hmm. in a song. And so working that out with them was really cool. And I was just like, I'm like, you, Oh, I'm like, did you get Jello to actually leave? His house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Was that was, was it very invested? Yeah. Where did you shoot all that we stuff? Did was it, a, is there an East Coast and a West Coast one? No, it was it's all, all, all uh, West Coast? Warner Brothers. Okay. Yeah, the lot, and we we could only afford one day. <laughs> really hoping it didn't rain or anything. Uh, Just maximize your like La La Land dreams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was cool. I mean, we had the the everybody came in and did the kind of cast recording session one day and then we did costumes the next day and then we shot it on the third day and it was intense, man. It was one of the best and most challenging days of my life. It was so hard, but so wonderful. Cause it's so different from like when you think of documentary <laughs> yeah. filmmaking, you don't think yeah. you just like, Oh, let's, let's actually make a musical basically. Yeah. Yeah. And with, you know, makeup trucks and all kinds of, you know, grip and electric. I'm just Props, like, oh my God, yeah. how is this even happening? But it was, yeah, it was really great. And the vibe was so good with everybody. And even Don and Jello, like just <laughs> so like, they were so pumped to meet the ladies from the bathrooms are coming. Oh, I was going to say, like, they probably only knew each other and yeah. Uh, Steve. Yeah. But it's also, like, I'm like, did do they bring real copies of those records out to, like, sit in the sun? Oh, no. I'm like, those are, like, reproductions, yeah, right? Was, yeah. We, we made photocopies. Yeah, that's what I figured. To, like, yeah. like, the there's no way those guys are bringing those in the sunlight. <laughs> no. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, how, how? That's probably the most sunlight Jello's gotten in a long time, <laughs> as I was thinking. He was so great, though. He, yeah. He, he showed up early on he, set, or he showed up on, you like, I his call time. I don't like, remember. My call time better be afternoon. <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly that. I feel like there were no problems though. From yeah, yeah. he was just really into it, and you know, I should have the plungers in this hand as opposed to this hand, and you know, he always brings up like he's like, you know, I did major in theater. <laughs> That was his like college major before at Santa kidding? Cruz. He never yeah. said that to he me. He didn't because wow. one time he came down and did ASCAT actually because uh, Matt Besser is a huge like Dead Kennedys fan oh. and um, he's like he's like well I'll tell them I have a theater background. <laughs> <laughs> I love your like, jello I, <laughs> I do I do kind of like a lot of people do kind of the heightened like you know I do the the like well uh, send me a fax <laughs> like I do that version of Jello. So, yeah. I really love that guy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, I've so appreciated how cool he was. About he that is like a lyrics. true, like he likes, he just loves records. Yeah. He's like, I could spend money on drugs or records. And I decided that the records would last longer. Yeah. 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 I, uh, that, that whole musical number though, was just so magical and perfect. I don't know. Just something about, I, I thought the, I don't know if documentary people are going to so support what I'm doing here. Maybe they will, but you know, eh, you know, I don't know if they support this show, so it's fine. <laughs> but it was, it just felt like the right thing to do for the movie. And, and it's kind of, you know, he starts in this really cynical place at the beginning of his journey 
and and you know over these years he's he's opened up so much and changed so much it just it's the full 180 mm-hmm. to where he starts and just how could we not do that you know and and uh and he gets to do it with his hero so mm-hmm. just very heartwarming kind of stuff and did hank write the song in the beginning too or steve wrote the no. song in the beginning or? that was our composer oh, you had a com- di lorenzo okay yeah. and he did like the 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 score sounds yeah okay, we yeah. had an original score and and uh, we recorded with an orchestra in seattle and mm-hmm. that was important to me because mm-hmm. i felt like you know in the heyday of these things they had full orchestras and they were employing musicians and you know it wasn't just the performers and choreographers and stuff it was also right the mu- right yeah that were getting paid out of this stuff and make you know making mm-hmm. a living and able to continue their art in whatever way through getting paid for these things so i thought we've got to have an orchestra we've got to have a, a an original score with thematic material and really super melodic kind of throwback vibe and Tony DiLorenzo that's his whole thing I mean he's so great he's like the secret weapon I think if people know about him I mean he can do like John Williams kind of vibe he can do anything like Mm -hmm. that super melodic gorgeous stuff nice yeah very creative and as that was another question I had is like was there any issues using the songs because I know when I talk to people about filmmaking, like music rights always ends up being like a big blocker for people. That was, I, I investigated all that before I ever started. Mm-hmm. Like, are we going to be able to use this stuff? Like is am Coca-Cola going to be like, no, yeah. I own that. Uh, right. Am I going to get sued by McDonald's or whatever? Um, and, and so a lot of it is fair use. Mm. especially everything after like 79. Right. So uh-huh. all that stuff. That's why I could only use certain amount, you know, smaller clips mm-hmm. from some of these shows because it was fair use and it was just enough to prove the point. Um, but yeah, sometimes we did have to reach out to the companies and they were, uh, they were surprised that this stuff was even done. You know, the the people working there now had no idea this was ever done. Uh, and so they were, they were pretty cool. Like JC Penney was cool about it. Ford was cool about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but generally it was, we didn't even, (laughs) you know, it was fair use. We didn't mess around with that too much. Yeah. Nice. Um, so, uh, after all of this, uh, all this stuff you've been doing and promoting this film, um, what, what's, uh, on your docket now? What, what are you working on these days? I'm doing another music doc right now. Okay. Uh, and developing some stuff, actually some scripted things as well. Cause I just feel like there's so many different ways to tell a true story you know you just got to figure out the right one so we're um some comedy projects oh cool as well yeah and you obviously know all these comedy people as well yeah we're one thing we're doing with steve right now it's i'm pretty excited about a half hour comedy thing so yeah so a lot of stuff kind of in the bubbling up stages Mm -hmm. so i'm excited to see what actually happens and if I can keep making a living at all doing this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Have you had to take in any editing uh, uh, work for money? Or I did one consulting job, job for a Hulu documentary. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah, I've mostly been turning things down, trying to get this other stuff going. So we'll see if that was a good move or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, as long as you like the, the, the uh, technology doesn't change. It's like, it's always, yeah. you can always, well, do you want to get to a point where you have someone else editing and you're just overlooking their work? That would be, that would be, <laughs> I mean, I know I'll always be editing on some, some level, but mm-hmm. it would be nice to have some people that I can trust, you know, that have the same story sense that I do. And so I, uh, that's what I'm really looking for right now is, 
other creative partners like that, that, mm-hmm. that get my vibe. Did you have any like kind of, uh, mentors in editing or? No. And I really feel like that's, it's so important. I mean, I did Susan Littenberg. She's actually a producer on the movie. She was probably, I would say the one mentor I had in my career. And, and, uh, she has been an editor for a long time and, uh, we both worked, we met on a Soderbergh movie called Solaris. Oh yeah, yeah. Solaris. Yes, yes. I was an edit PA and, uh, she, so she's given good guidance over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but that, I feel like that's so important and I didn't know that early on. Mm -hmm. Did you have a mentor? No. I mean, I wonder, I've thought about this a lot in terms of like whatever I was attempting to do. And like, you know, I wouldn't say that my relationship with Jello was like a mentor mentee relationship because I, we weren't, I was never trying to do the same thing that he was doing, Yeah. but in the sense of like, I wanted to, you know, I had a record label. I worked for his record label. I kind of wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I kind of was always looking for something like that. And, uh, even now it's interesting because I now I do stand up and it's like anyone who's been doing it longer than me in a way as a men- mentor, even if they're, you know, depending on where our careers are at, even if we're, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter. Like, it's just like they have everyone is someone you can learn from, I guess, is how it feels to me at this yeah. point. Yeah. Like I learn from people who are just starting out. I'm like, oh, they kind of remind me what it's like to, you know, you know, just be starting out as well. So, yeah, I um. I love the work of Doug Prey, I've, and he's. I've gotten to know him lately. Um, I know the name, but is, is he's a f- director, director okay. and editor. Mm-hmm. Most recently, uh, he did Def- the Defiant ones for HBO. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. the Defiant ones. Um, yeah, but uh, he's. I mean, he started way back. Uh, anyway, um, in terms of like documentary stuff. Yeah, and, yeah, and and the fact that he's directing and editing, and and then also Kate Amend is another person I've gotten to know and uh, she's a phenomenal editor and so you know just trying to stay connected to those people who are good people Mm -hmm. at heart you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and who are so talented as well and just how how they manage to stay in this and not get discouraged sometimes did you did you uh learn anything working with Soderbergh or like how closely well I was mostly just a PA on those Mm -hmm. kinds of projects and assistant editor um but he, he did meet with us actually after Bathtubs came out and, and had seen the film and was very encouraging, spent two hours with us talking about it and re- really loved it, which was to be sitting in the room with the guy and he's telling, like he's an idol, you know, mm-hmm. and he's telling me that he liked our movie and, and it's just, that was my kind of head exploding. I can't believe this is happening kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that was really encouraging. De Niro and Soderbergh, <laughs> just a couple of fans <laughs> of our guest, David Wisenant, uh, you know, friends in high places. Um, and also I guess Letterman you, you, you communicate with regularly or like uh, regards to the film and stuff. Well, yeah. he's, yeah, he's been, his kind of team has been helping us support the film mm-hmm. and tweet about it and all that kind of stuff. Um, but is there yeah. exclusivity with Netflix or do you have like other, other, is it available other streaming services? It's on yeah. iTunes and Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Focus picked it up and then uh, they have, you know, Universal Home Entertainment is kind of responsible for getting it out into the world. So mm-hmm. I, I, as far as I know, isn't available internationally at all, which is crazy. Oh, it's not on Netflix overseas no. or anything mm-hmm. right now. Oh, no. so crazy! That's my you, you can buy it on iTunes though, or no, or not yet. 
Uh, you can internationally. I don't know if you can buy it. Okay, because we have some UK and Australia and Canada listeners. They've too, been. So. I think in Canada, it's definitely available on iTunes mm-hmm. and Amazon. Okay. Um, I'm so we don't want to spoil too much. You definitely <laughs> still have to watch it if you're in the UK or Australia. You'll have to find a way to listen to this. Request uh, it from Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Hit them up. <laughs> I'm sure they take kindly <laughs> to that. Um, um, yeah. So thanks so much for coming over. It was really great talking to you, Deva. Thanks for having me. It thanks. was fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Subdoc at subdocpodcast.com. Recapping reality since 2015. Our theme song was written by David Siegel and our show was engineered by Will Scoville. For as little as $1 a month, you can donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash subdocpodcast. If you want to help us in other ways, please share the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Find Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on the site. Subdoc is by doc fans for doc fans. So if you want to advertise with Subdoc, got a film or opinions, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you and what you're docking out on. Email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com.